We return our thanks unto thee, O God, our Father, for all that thou hast given unto us. Therefore we praise thee for thy gifts, and we praise thee for the opportunity of giving back to thee. Therefore we ask for the Holy Spirit to superintend these offerings which we make this day, and to use them to thy glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Not long ago, I heard a funny story. Right at the turn of the century, around 1900, there was a great influx of Irish immigrants here into the United States. Jobs were hard to come by, and one big Irishman had landed him a job as a cop in New York City. There are many Irish cops in New York City. One day he came around to his uh, sergeant, and he said to him, how do you spell Nebuchadnezzar? And the sergeant, who didn't know how to spell Nebuchadnezzar himself, said, if you're so dumb that you can't spell Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to fire you. Now get out of here and write your report up. Well, the cop went outside, and he couldn't lose that job. And so finally he came back, and he handed his report in to the sergeant. And the sergeant said, well, I see you learned how to spell Nebuchadnezzar after all. And he said, no, sir, I didn't. And he said, well, why did you need to, to spell it? And he said, well, sir, you see, there was a dead horse on Nebuchadnezzar Street. And he said, I needed to write up my report about this horse falling dead on Nebuchadnezzar Street. I didn't know how to spell it, and so I just drugged the horse around the main street and wrote up my report. <laughs> well, now, this is the way a lot of us do with our Christian faith. We, we drag the dead horse around to something that we can believe or can accept, and we say, this is where I am, I can spell this or I can do that. We make a great deal of store by our gifts. The Apostle Paul was not writing to pagans in Corinth, he was writing to Christians. In fact, if you'll take the trouble to go back and read this whole great letter, you will find that in the very beginning of this letter, he directs his letter to those whom he calls called of God, chosen to gather in Christ. These are people who are supposed to be real Christians. Now, if you are called of God, if you consider yourself a true Christian, then you have a responsibility to pay close attention to the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians and indeed all of God's word but very especially this. You see, a great many of us labor under the delusion that God is going to judge us according to spectacular gifts. This church in Corinth was ambitious for spiritual distinction and gifts, as we've already noted. And yet God is not going to measure us by great gifts. He will measure us by our likeness to the Lord Jesus, by how we have been like him, how we have lived in him, whether or not we have been faithfully abiding in him. This is what he wants of us, and this is why I believe Paul wrote this 13th chapter, to correct all of the jealousy and the dissension and the trouble that existed in this church over misconduct, he speaks to them about love. 
and only if we could have this medicine today in the church, how many of the wounds in the church could be healed, and how much greater efficiency there would be, and what an attractive witness would be born to the world outside. Last week we looked at some of the characteristics of love. Actually, there are 14 characteristics that Paul lists from verses 4 through verse 7 of the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. He tells us first in two positive statements and then in a series of four pairs of negative statements and then again in two more pairs of positive statements what love is like. He tells us, for instance, that love is very kind and very patient. Then he goes on to tell us about some things that love would never do, that love would never be envious or jealous, that love would not con uh, conduct itself in an unseemly manner. Uh, he goes on to go all the way through these definitions, which let, let me just read them for you. Love suffers long and is kind. Love envies not. Love does not puff itself up, that is, makes no parade of its uh, achievement. Love does not behave itself unseemly. This is simply good manners. Uh, love is not quickly provoked, not easily irritated. Love does not keep a scorecard of wrongs. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Moffat has a beautiful word here. He says that love is gladdened by goodness. And this brings us down to the end of these characteristics and the end of this great chapter, because at verse 7, Paul says that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The word bears all things, uh, the word bear in Greek here is like a shield, something that protects another person. This type of love shields other people against malicious gossip, against evil rumors that might be spread. It absorbs some of the blows that might be struck upon another person. How much of this do we exemplify today? Love bears all things. I was reading this morning in the Gospel of John the account of how in the Garden of Gethsemane the soldiers had come to arrest Jesus and take him away. And do you know what Jesus said to them? He said, if I am the man you want, let these others go their way. He wanted his disciples to be freed. If I am the one you want, let these others go their way. This is just like Jesus, isn't it? And Jesus is just like this 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Love bears all things. There's an interesting note, those of you who are scholars. Thomas Carlyle produced a monumental work, The History of the French Revolution. Carlyle was a Christian, but his life was filled with much melancholy, and it was hard for him to overcome some bitter things that happened to him in life. 
One night, John Stuart Mill, his uh, fellow Scotsman, came to Carlisle as pale as death and trembling because John Stuart Mill had accidentally burnt Thomas Carlyle's sole manuscript of the first volume of his work on the French Revolution. Carlyle spent his time in trying to relieve John Stuart Mill's agony because of this accident. Those of you who are working on a PhD, think of how you'd feel if someone burned your years of research. And that night, Carlyle wrote this in his journal, all that I had faith, all that I had, then there were nothing too hard or too heavy for me. Cry silently in thy inmost heart for it. Surely he will give it to thee. At all events, it is as if my invisible schoolmaster had torn up my copybook when I showed it to him and said, No, boy, thou must write better than this. What can I sorrowing do? What can I do but obey and think that this is best to work again and oh, may God be with me, for this earth is not friendly. Oh, in his name. Love could bear that disappointment and proceed on to his work. This is why he became the, one of the greatest men of letters in his day, uh, the dedication to his work. Love can bear all things. Paul says that love believes all things. This does not mean that love is gullible or stupid. But it means that love is willing to believe the best about other people. It's willing to be generous in its assessment of others. Love is willing to trust. Love is not suspicious. Think how many homes have been destroyed by a lack of trust between husband and wife. We wouldn't have any generation gap if it were not for this suspicion, mistrust that exists between parent and child. I was reading a psychiatrist last week who was talking about problems of adolescence. And he said that in doing his research and talking with, with adolescents, asking him what characteristics they admired most in older people, do you know what they said? We admire most the people who have confidence in us and who trust us, the people who care for us. They listed such things as, he wanted me to be able to succeed when I took my test for my driver's license. He was happy when I came home and I'd passed it. He had confidence in me, trust. Trust is so important. Love believeth all things. Many of us can look back to some person who simply said to us one day, I love you and I believe in you. Our middle son, if you'll forgive my personal reference, is named Frank. And the reason he's named Frank is that an old engineer a rough old man who became a Christian in the 
first church that I served over in Waynesville, whose name was Frank Sampson. I'd just gotten out of seminary. You make a lot of dumb mistakes when you first get out of seminary and take a church. Frank came by my office often for me to read the Bible with him and pray with him. And finally, he became a true Christian. And one time when a particularly trying situation had come up, he came by as usual for his little prayer and Bible reading. We discussed the problem. When he got ready to walk out of my study, he reached around and caught my arm. And he said, boy, I believe in you and I love you. Well, that just made all the difference in the world. So much difference that I wanted to name my son after a man who trusted me like that. Love, trust, no suspicion, but trust, looking for the best. This is what we need in one another. He says that love hopes. Love sees hope when other people cannot see any hope. You remember that time that the Pharisees caught the woman who was taken in the very act of adultery and dragged her and flung her down in the front of Jesus and said, Master, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. They didn't bring the man. They just brought the woman and pushed her down at the feet of Jesus. They said, now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? They thought that if Jesus said, go ahead and keep the law of Moses and stone her to death, the Romans would arrest him for usurping their authority. Or they thought if he said, no, don't stone her at all, he would be denying the validity of the law of Moses. And so they stood back and leered at Jesus and this woman. And Jesus, with that love that has fine manners, with that love that has that instinctive courtesy, Jesus did not even look at the woman. The scriptures tell us that he looked down at the ground and he wrote on the ground, and there's a little line in there that says, as though he heard them not. Jesus didn't even act like he heard what they were saying about the woman. He just looked at the ground and wrote as though he heard them not. And then finally Jesus looked up at them and he said, The sinless one among you cast the first stone. And their conscience condemned them and they filed away one after another. Jesus did not approve of immorality, God forbid, far from it. He demanded of us purity, even of thought. But he looked at this woman, and he had hope for what she could be. And he said, Woman, where are thine accusers? Has no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. He had hope in what this woman could be. 
and trust in the fact that she would take the forgiveness which had been given to her and the obligation that came with it. And that love was redemptive there. This is the kind of love that he means for us to show toward one another. I was reading a great theologian this week, and he said the kind of love that God expects of us is that love which identifies with God's interest in love in others. The love that he wants me to show toward other people is the kind of love that he has shown for them. Jesus could see in that sinful woman something that was precious, something that was worth trusting and hoping and loving and forgiving. And God says, I want you to be able to see that in people too. He, he sees it in me, and I rejoice in his willingness to forgive me. Love hopeth all things. Love endureth all things. The Greek word here is right interesting. It's like a, a group of soldiers who have gone into battle and there is withering fire and people are falling on the right and on the left. There is one soldier that keeps on moving. And this is the way love is. Love keeps on moving. Love does not give up. Love endures. Love endures. I used to be in the 36th Infantry Division National Guard. This was a famous division during World War II that had fought on the beaches of Normandy. The 36th Infantry Division had a great tradition. They believed in moving out. They knew that you had to be moving or you'd be killed. And the commander that we had of the little unit that I served in used to always be preaching to us the fact that you could not stay in one position or you're, you would be identified by the enemy and killed. He told us constantly, when you are in one place, get up and move forward. Sure, there will be some people killed, he said, but you've got to get up and move. Otherwise, you're sure to be killed and the battle will be lost. You've got to do what he called rebound. You, ma you make an assault, you hit, you fire from your position, you rebound, you get up and move. And if you don't, you're pinned down and killed. Well, this is the way love is. Love endures the assault and keeps moving forward. And then there sounds a sort of a funeral-like tone here. Paul tells us that if there are prophecies, they will pass away. That if there are gifts of tongues, they will pass away. That if there is knowledge, it will pass away. And this is the truth. Galileo, Copernicus, Sir Isaac Newton, the knowledge that they had, they, they pass away pick up a textbook that's 15 or 20 years old in many of the fields today of technical sciences and it's way out of date. Knowledge passes away. Let me say this about it. 
prophecies will one day be fulfilled and there won't be any need for them. A prophet was one who took God's message and gave it to people. But one day, we shall be face to face with God, and so there won't be any need for someone else to come and preach God's word to us. We'll be face to face with, face to face with him, and so prophecy will, will be gone. Knowledge. Knowledge is great, and these Corinthians prided themselves in knowledge. Athens was in Greece. And yet one day there won't be any need for knowledge. It'll be swallowed up in the truth. These tongues that they were always talking about, these gifts of ecstatic speech or utterance or these gifts of glorious preaching and speaking, one day all of that will pass away. There won't be any need for it anymore. So Paul says, set your sights on that which will last forever. Make love. Make love, says Paul, your aim. This other will pass away. When this building was being built, outside they would erect, they had to erect a scaffold. And they would put the scaffolding up high so that the masons could put the stones in place and put up the sides of the building. But then one day there comes a time when the sides are up. And you don't leave the scaffolding there. You dismantle the scaffolding and move it away. Well, Paul says tongues are like that, prophecies are like that, knowledge is like that, just like scaffolding that's being erected on the outside. One day it'll be completed, the structure will be complete, there will be no more need for it, and it'll be dismantled and taken down and hauled away. But he says the one thing that will last forever is love. Then he illustrates something. He says, you know, now we only know in part, but one day we shall know as fully as God knows us. But when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. Then he uses an analogy about childhood. When I was a child, he says, I used to speak like a child. I felt like a child. I thought like a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish ways. The psychiatrists tell us that in every grown-up man is the little child that he used to be. And many of these childish traits still have to be dealt with. Childhood is marvelous and beautiful and wonderful. But the object of the little child is to mature and to grow. Watch a little boy who comes and puts his tiny foot down into his daddy's shoes and walks around the house, clopping around with him. Or the little girl who puts mama's big hat on or some big purse that she carries around. What she wants to do is to grow up, to mature. And it's very sad that some people, even though they have reached adult years have not matured sufficiently, and especially is this true in the area of Christian growth. The object is to grow up. Children think only of self, only me. Children sometimes have a guest complex 
like a person who goes to a hotel and sits down at a table and expects to be waited on. Other people are to serve the child. The children have a, a disposition sometimes to complain if things don't go just like they want them to go. And isn't this the case in the church? Both of these childish traits are so often manifest. One old country preacher has said that some people are like a centipede with a corn on every foot. A lot of things that, are, that they have to complain about all the time. And then there is what is called uh, momentary momentousness, that everything has to be done just that moment. My wishes have to be gratified. But Paul says we grow out of these childish traits and we grow up and mature in love. The Corinthians. The Corinthians had erred in all these errors that we, in all these ways we have mentioned, priding themselves in their knowledge, priding themselves in their gifts of tongues, priding themselves uh, in prophesying. So Paul says, don't be childish. Grow up. Grow up. And then he brings his great, him of love to an end by saying, now we see in a mirror darkly. Corinth was famous for mirrors. They were manufactured there, but not mirrors such as we know. The mirrors that are made out of glass with silver on the back of it didn't come in until about the 13th century. For many, many, many centuries, the only mirrors that existed were burnished metal, highly polished metal. And this burnished metal would give baffling and puzzling and cloudy and confusing reflections. If a man looked in and into it, I suppose he could see whether his hat was on or not, uh, but he wouldn't be able to see carefully uh, defined features. There would be much that would be puzzling about it. And so Paul says that this is the way it is now. There is so much that is baffling and puzzling to us, so much that we cannot see clearly and that we cannot now understand why it is that some people have to go through so much sorrow, so much suffering, so much distress. The, the opportunities and the good things in life seem to be so unfairly distributed sometimes and so unequally distributed. And yet Paul says that while we look into the baffling reflections and can only know in part, we ought to remember that one day God will reveal his whole perfection to us and we shall see things clearly, clearly as he sees them and as his purposes have been worked out. Now abideth faith, hope, and love these three, but the greatest of these is love. Then he says, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. That's good. But, says St. Paul, make love your aim. Young people always like to hear love stories. And one of the greatest love stories that I know anything about has a sort of melancholy streak to it, but teaches a great lesson. 
In Edinburgh, where I had the privilege of going to school at one time, there was a great church, St. Bernard's Church. The minister for a great many years at St. Bernard's Church was a Scotsman whose name was George Matheson. George Matheson came from a well-to-do, prosperous Scottish family. Early in life, he demonstrated unusual intellectual capability and scholarship. He was engaged to be married to one of the loveliest of Edinburgh's beautiful ladies. And then George Matheson began to be besieged with vision difficulties. He had trouble in reading, and he was, he was aching with tremendous headaches. And then he went to consult the finest oculus at the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh. I thought about this once when I was walking through the grounds of the Royal Infirmary, looking at the places where the various specialties are, the orthopedic people and the heart specialists and the obstetricians and, the, and then the people who study diseases of the eye. And George Matheson went there to the Royal Infirmary to consult the distinguished professor of medicine that dealt with diseases of the eye. And there he learned to his great sorrow that he had a disease in his eyes that meant certain blindness and that it would rapidly move in on him. He walked out of the doctor's office that day in a maze of hurt and confusion. He came down the steps of the physician's place and made his way through the streets of Edinburgh. He went to the girl that he loved and to whom he was engaged to be married. And sobbingly, he told her what the doctor had said. She treated it with some sympathy, but then she told him that she did not intend to be married to a blind man, and she broke off the engagement. With a double heartbreak and the loss of vision and with the loss of the woman he thought who loved him, George Matheson was hurt to the core of his soul. And out of that turmoil and sorrow, he began to learn what the love of God was like in all of the circumstances of life. And so he wrote these words that you sang a moment ago, O oh, love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean's depths its flow may richer, fuller be. And all the world has been blessed with George Matheson's hymns, his studies of biblical characters, and his great ministry in Edinburgh. God can bring a joy that seeks us through pain. He can draw us close unto himself, and the language by which he draws us is a language of love. And what Jesus commanded of those who followed him in the last days that he was with them, I command you, he said, love one another. Love one another as I have loved you, 
and as the Father has loved me, just as if you take your airplane ticket and tear it out of the coupon, it's not good if detached. If you break yourself away from Jesus, you can never bear the love which he wants from us. That fruit comes only by abiding in him. Let us stand in prayer. Oh God, our Father, we feel so clumsy and so awkward when we pick up a theme so great as that which thou hast given us from thy word. And we need a greater teacher. We need the Holy Spirit to help us to understand that this is not something that we can take or leave. But this is a solemn obligation that we are to manifest toward those fellow Christians and indeed toward the world. And yet so few of us even show it in our homes to our wives or to our children or to the neighbors and friends who are about us. And for all of this, we have to seek forgiveness. And we thank thee, Father, that you are willing to forgive us and that you are willing to lead us to higher ground. Enable us to make love our aim so that we may be like Jesus. And may the Holy Spirit produce this fruit in us to your glory. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and our guide, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.